the Parage, a passing of Queen Elizabeth II, on the iHeartRadio Talk Network. Good afternoon. I'm your host, Amanda Galbraith. Uh, typically, we host Free For All Friday right now, but we are actually going to be doing a special coverage of the uh, loss of Queen Elizabeth. Obviously, she passed yesterday, and a historic address uh, by King Charles III. He will make his first public remarks as king momentarily. Uh, this is a role that he's been waiting to ascend to for over 70 years, uh, which is remarkable. He ascends the throne at the age of 30, 73, I should say, the oldest monarch in British history to do so. Um, his remarks, which were pre-recorded in the Blue Room of Buckingham Palace uh, earlier today, uh, he's, he arrived at Buckingham Palace, he was greeted with uh, significant cheers uh, from the public. Uh, mood in Britain right now, um, and he will be speaking uh, publicly to the world, to the Commonwealth, for the first time since his mother's passing, uh, which is, I think, a, a speech that many people are waiting for. Um, I think part of what he's going to have to do today, candidly, is both speak to the incredible contribution his mother has made, something that people have been talking about for you know, since the last 24 hours, outpouring of support from across around the world, as well as reassure the nation that he is up to the job and the reassure the nation and the Commonwealth that there will be stability. Because obviously he's not just the King of England and the King of the UK, but also he is the head of state for many of the Commonwealth nations, which are significant, including Canada. And now we have King Charles who will be delivering his speech as King. My beloved mother was an inspiration, an example to me and to all my family. And we owe her the most heartfelt debt any family could owe to their mother for her love, affection, guidance, understanding and example. Queen Elizabeth was a life well lived, a promise with destiny kept and she is mourned most deeply in her passing. That promise of lifelong service I renew to you all today. Alongside the personal grief that all my family are feeling, we also share with so many of you in the United Kingdom, in all the countries where the Queen was head of state, in the Commonwealth and across the world, a deep sense of gratitude for the more than 70 years in which my mother, as Queen, served the people of so many nations. In 1947, on her 21st birthday, she pledged in a broadcast from Cape Town to the Commonwealth to devote her life, whether it be short or long, to the service of her peoples. That was more than a promise. It was a profound personal commitment which defined her whole life. She made sacrifices for duty. Her dedication and devotion as sovereign never wavered through times of change and progress, through times of joy and celebration, and through times of sadness and loss. In her life of service, we saw that abiding love of tradition, together with that fearless embrace of progress, 
which makes us great as nations. The affection, admiration, and respect she inspired became the hallmark of her reign. And as every member of my family can testify, she combined these qualities with warmth, humor, and an unerring ability always to see the best in people. I pay tribute to my mother's memory and I honor her life of service. I know that her death brings great sadness to so many of you, and I share that sense of loss beyond measure with you all. When the Queen came to the throne, Britain and the world were still coping with the privations and aftermath of the Second World War and still living by the conventions of earlier times. In the course of the last 70 years, we have seen our society become one of many cultures and many faiths. The institutions of the state have changed in turn. But through all changes and challenges, our nation and the wider family of realms of whose talents, traditions, and achievements I am so inexpressibly proud have prospered and flourished. Our values have remained and must remain constant. The role and the duties of monarchy also remain, as does the sovereign's particular relationship and responsibility towards the Church of England the church in which my own faith is so deeply rooted. In that faith and the values it inspires, I have been brought up to cherish a sense of duty to others and to hold in the greatest respect the precious traditions, freedoms and responsibilities of our unique history and our system of parliamentary government. As the Queen herself did with such unswerving devotion, I too now solemnly pledge myself throughout the remaining time God grants me to uphold the constitutional principles at the heart of our nation. And wherever you may live in the United Kingdom or in the realms and territories across the world, and whatever may be your background or beliefs, I shall endeavor to serve you with loyalty, respect, and love, as I have throughout my life. My life will, of course, change as I take up my new responsibilities. It will no longer be possible for me to give so much of my time and energies to the charities and issues for which I care so deeply. But I know this important work will go on in the trusted hands of others. This is also a time of change for my family. I count on the loving help of my darling wife, Camilla. In recognition of her own loyal public service since our marriage 17 years ago, she becomes my queen consort. 
I know she will bring to the demands of her new role the steadfast devotion to duty on which I have come to rely so much. As my heir, William now assumes the Scottish titles which have meant so much to me. He succeeds me as Duke of Cornwall and takes on the responsibilities for the Duchy of Cornwall, which I have undertaken for more than five decades. Today, I am proud to create him Prince of Wales, Tewusog Cymru, the country whose title I have been so greatly privileged to bear during so much of my life and duty. With Catherine beside him, our new Prince and Princess of Wales will, I know, continue to inspire and lead our national conversations, helping to bring the marginal to the centre ground where vital help can be given. I want also to express my love for Harry and Meghan as they continue to build their lives overseas. In a little over a week's time, we will come together as a nation, as a commonwealth, and indeed a global community, to lay my beloved mother to rest. In our sorrow, let us remember and draw strength from the light of her example. On behalf of all my family, I can only offer the most sincere and heartfelt thanks for your condolences and support. They mean more to me than I can ever possibly express. And to my darling Mama, as you begin your last great journey to join my dear late Papa, I want simply to say this. Thank you. Thank you for your love and devotion to our family and to the family of nations you have served so diligently all these years. May flights of angels sing thee to thy rest. A powerful and historic... Uh, powerful and historic commentary from uh, King Charles III. He addressed uh, the world um, from Buckingham Palace just now. That was pre-recorded a little earlier today. In his remarks, uh, he spoke about his love for his mother. Uh, at the end, he said he thanked her for her love and devotion to our family, to the family of nations you've served so diligently. May flights of angels sing to the rest. Uh, he also uh, announced that, as we had heard prior, that um, his wife Camilla will become Queen Consort, what we were aware of. He also announced that Prince William um, is now going to be taking on Scottish titles, the Duchy of Cornwall, and most significantly, the title of Prince of Wales. Uh, his wife Catherine becomes the Princess of Wales, uh, a title that was not held by Camilla previously and has not been held by anyone since Princess Diana. So again, another significant uh, statement by uh, King Charles III and also expresses love for Prince Harry and Meghan um, as they continue to build their love overseas. So a speech, uh, it tracked about um, just short of nine minutes long, I believe, just around there. 
uh, where he spoke about the Commonwealth, the history of his mother, um, referenced the historic speech that she made in 1947, and from Cape Town when she was 21 years old, where she said she would devote her life to public service, something that she has done, and then said that he would be doing something similar. So this is, uh, I think, a remarkable speech in uh, what was done. I think it was designed candidly to reach out to the public to be to kind of set out the kind of king that we expect Charles will be and also to get a sense of reassurance of there will be a continuation of the monarchy. There will be a continuation of the, the sense of service that the queen has done. Uh, he also uh, referenced, I think it was very significant, that he would continue to maintain the duties of the monarchy, maintain the duties of the Church of England, uh, and also his respect for history and the system of parliamentary government. And and that's interesting because Prince Charles in the past has had, well, King Charles, I should say now, has been criticized for uh, for in the past being too political, right? There there were stories of him writing what called Black Spider Letters, which you can look up if you'd like, where he was advocating for different environmental policies, um, spoke quite privately to government. Those were then released by, by the media. But he very much came to the speech today uh, came to the speech today to say that he would be continuing the tradition. So I think, again, a way of him sort of ensuring that we would provide some continuity, provide some after the Queen. He also talked about the fact that there will be uh, there will be a National Day of Mourning, something that we've also heard uh, in Canada. So we can, uh, so certainly we're going to be debating this, so we're going to get into this now um, with the panel, if, if they're uh, if they're able to jump in on on the show, I'll just wait and bring them in. I'll talk a little bit about what their initial reaction to this, and of course speak to this um, as well uh, later on in the show. Um, I, I for one, I thought it was a good speech. I thought it was a measured speech. Uh, I thought it was significant that he addressed all of his immediate family, including Harry and Meghan, which is something I think people are going to be looking for. I thought it was important that he noted his respect for history and the system of parliamentary government because that is a question that's being raised. Uh, so let me just see if we've got our panelists in. Elias and Matt, are you there? I'm, I'm here. Oh, perfect. Awesome. All right. So here we go. So, <laughs> so I'm blabbing <laughs> about this. Uh, what were your, maybe I'll go to you first, Matt. What was your reaction to uh, Charles' speech? You know, based on what I was able to hear, Amanda, just as I was uh, joining the panel here, I was—I think I was able to hear most of what you were saying. And I would say my immediate reaction generally mirrors yours. Um, it was measured. It was calm, to be honest. I mean, uh, as much as we look at uh, as at the king as a public figure and in, in some ways a political figure, he's a human being. And I think some of that might get buried in some of the the breathless coverage over the next couple of weeks. But I was wondering, listening to him talk, if my mother were to have died about 24 hours ago and you threw me on to address the world, would I be as measured as he was? And no, I don't think I was. So that's something that jumped out at me. Certainly, uh, Amanda, I noticed as well uh, his his brief comment about Harry and Meghan. And I'm not going to read too much into that, but they were mentioned. That box was checked. I think like you, though, I was mostly listening for, for tone, um, and I think this is a difficult speech to give, right? Because it has to both honor the legacy of the person he is replacing, someone he is obviously personally invested in. It's his mother. And then on top of that as well, it is a speech to the British people and, and people all over the world who have a new king. So I don't know if it was a perfect speech. I don't know what it was seeking to do, but listening to it, Amanda, as far as I'm concerned, I think he hit the right notes. 
There we go. And we will uh, take a break right now and come back after with Elias's take on the speech by King Charles III. You're listening to coverage of the passing of Queen Elizabeth II on the iHeartRadio Talk Network. Canada and the world mourn her passing. Welcome back to the show. I'm Amanda Galbraith, host of Free For All Friday, and this is a special edition of the show where we are covering uh, the passing of Queen Elizabeth II and, of course, uh, historic remarks that were just given moments ago by her hair and now the uh, King of England and King of of uh, the UK uh, style Charles, Prince, King Charles III, I should say, not Prince Charles III. Uh, he delivered remarks from the Blue Room in Buckingham Palace. They were pre-recorded earlier today. Uh, he spoke for about eight minutes, this morning, eight to nine minutes, um, where he spoke about the warmth and humor of his mother, about uh, the important role he's taking, about the duties of the monarchy, his commitment to the history and system of parliamentary government, and how he will now pledge himself, like she did, to uphold constitutional principles at the heart of his nation and, of course, of the Commonwealth countries. Uh, he also, as we should remember, is not just, and as was being pointed out before we had the break there by by my uh, panelist, Matt Gurney, today, um, he's also just lost his mother, right, which is, you know, a thing that is incredibly difficult for anyone who's lost a parent. Uh, and at the end of his speech, uh, this is what he said when he was saying goodbye to what he called his darling mama. And to my darling mama, as you begin your last great journey to join my dear late papa, I want simply to say this. Thank you. Thank you for your love and devotion to our family and to the family of nations you have served so diligently all these years. May flights of angels sing thee to thy rest. So joining me today to unpack all of this is uh, our regular panel on Friday. So we have Matt Gurney, journalist and co-founder of The Line, uh, and Elias Makos, host of The Elias Makos Show on CJAD in Montreal, which airs from 9 a.m. to noon. Elias, what did you make of uh, King Charles's remarks? Well, you know, I don't want to sort of repeat what you and Matt have already said. I'll, I'll keep it brief brief on this end because there's one goal for King Charles, King Charles III. Slow, steady, and you are the institution. You know, King Charles, Char, Charles himself is now the institution. And if he can manage to do that, he should be fairly successful. But I think for me, what I'm thinking about now, and I think you know, some people are already moving along this along you know this pathway, is like what we get now to what this means for Canada, and a kind of reckoning for our country. Because I'm already seeing right people calling for the literal impossible, changing the Canadian Constitution and the role of the monarchy in Canada, and. You know, I want to point this out because yesterday we saw the prime minister speak about the queen and her passing. You heard the emotion. You saw the tears in his eyes. I, for one, don't doubt that that was very much was very much real. But another thing that we're forgetting, and some people are pointing this out, and good for them. Earlier this year, okay, this country had an opportunity to really show how it felt about the queen. The federal government had a great opportunity to show how it really felt about the queen for the Platinum Jubilee. 
we did next to nothing. And I think this is a time for Justin Trudeau, the federal government, to talk about, well, how do we really feel about our institutions? And, and this is where I'm going, to, what I'm looking uh, towards, because I think the federal government right now is very good at virtue signaling. And they were, you know, earlier this year, they couldn't talk about the queen and do things like give Canadian citizens medals in honor of the, uh, of the queen, queen's jubilee, the platinum jubilee, because they couldn't crow about it on social media if they did, because they'd get so much flack because of colonialism and this and that. But yesterday, because the public was, you know, feeling the death of the queen, he could virtue signal. So he trots out there and he talks about the queen's role and he says what should have been said when she was still alive. So, I mean, I, I think this is where we're headed. You know, as, as I look at this Friday, you know, that's what I'm looking at. I'm looking at what does this mean for our institutions? And Charles has a role to play in all this, to bring it right back to Charles, as I mentioned. He's the institution now. So how is he going to present himself as an institution that is worth keeping around for a whole bunch of people that would be inclined not to have them around. Yeah, and Matt, I think Elias makes it, that is where the conversation is going, right? I think it's 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 been an interesting kind of two step here as we kind of deal with the mourning of the Queen, and, and I think candidly, like broadly, love for her across the country uh, and around the world with reckoning of the fact that Canada is a member of the Commonwealth. Um, there's 54 countries uh, around the world that are members of the Commonwealth, but only 14 of them still have uh, the Queen or the King as the head of state, including Canada and Australia, for example. And that's been controversial. So I naturally think that will be part of the conversation the next, you know, maybe not in the next week or starting in the next week, maybe a lot, you know, Elias sort of started it and I think it's the right thing to do. What do you, how do you think, I guess, Matthew, how do you think that conversation will evolve and what do you think Charles is going to have to do? Because I do think it's going to be a lot tougher to say King Charles in a couple of weeks uh, than it will. It was Queen Elizabeth or just the Queen. You know, I think we, we have a habit of getting used to things uh, faster than we sometimes give ourselves credit for. Right now, the monarchy is, is looming large in our lives because of the sad news of this week. And Amanda, as you say, a lot of us do have personal affection for uh, her late majesty and i think that is sort of clouding our view right now my guess is that two weeks from now we'll be like oh yeah we have a king now and you know the monarchy will retreat once more to the uh, part in canadian life where uh, to eliza's point like where the platinum jubilee comes and we basically ignored it right like this is i don't know if this is a bug so much as a feature where we have a mm -hmm. system of government that a lot of the time we can sort of benignly neglect without having to pay a huge uh, toll for that as long as king charles doesn't do anything completely boneheaded we'll probably be fine and we will be able to continue to rely on uh, the system of government that generally works. I understand. And, you know, we already are seeing, uh, you, you've both made the point already. We're already seeing the people jumping in with arguments that we should do this. We should, we should take this as an opportunity to reform. Those suggestions are just completely delusional and bonkers. Like Canada does not have enough widespread desire 
or political consensus to reopen the Constitution. We are a country right now that is struggling with a collapsing healthcare system that we allowed to collapse. We can't even issue passports, but we think somehow we have the political bandwidth. And to be blunt about this, the political and cultural maturity to do a top to bottom re-envisioning of how our entire system of government's going to work. Look, there's 70% of this country that would not trust Justin Trudeau to do that. There is 70% of this country, and it's some of the same people and some of the different people who would not trust Pierre Polyev to do that. There is no common consensus on these issues right now. So like I said, so long as the king doesn't do anything really, really dumb that forces us to talk about this again, we're going to go right back to ignoring it. People who have strong views on this will continue to have strong views on this, and we will continue to trundle along as a constitutional monarchy for two reasons. It basically works for us, and we're too incompetent to fix it. Yeah, true. Yeah, go right a qu- quick last. We've got about 45 seconds well, for you there. I'll, I'll just say what's interesting is, you know, when Matt just said the king, I thought of Elvis Presley before I thought of King <laughs> Charles. So that's one thing. And, and then let's not forget, to Matt's point, you know, there's also Quebec. I mean, everything Matt said was valid. Now add on top of that, you want to touch the Constitution? Well, bienvenue au Quebec where, uh, you know, the Quebec government will not make that an easy thing. So that really is, you know, it's it's not going to happen. You know, every time I talk to a constitutional ep- expert, it's laughable to think that we'll be able to get around it. But I think we do have to make a, a, a decision here in the country as to just what role we want, because clearly earlier this year, the message was telegraphed by the federal liberals that we want e- even a popular queen like Queen Elizabeth II to be as absent as possible from Canada and its institutions. Yeah, I, you know it's funny because I remember when the Diamond Jubilee was uh, happening. You like I remember joking you could get those medals in like cereal boxes. They were going all over the country, and you couldn't find one if you were like an inspector looking for the the platinum one. So I think it's it's a valid point and certainly an interesting one. And certainly we will continue to follow uh, this story as it evolves on the show, as well as I think the interesting angle that I just brought up in Quebec and and their role and their their perspective on this. But the other point we're going to talk to after the break is there's a Quebec election in full swing. And this week, Premier Legault apologized twice. Find out why next on Free For All Friday. This is Free For All Fridays with host Amanda Galbraith on the iHeartRadio Talk Network. Welcome back to the show. I'm your host, Amanda Galbraith, uh, where we unpack some of the biggest stories of the week. If you've been listening to date, uh, we've had a special show where we have uh, broadcast live uh, King Charles III's historic address to the world after the passing of his mother, Queen Elizabeth II. And of course, I uh, had analysis from the team then. And now we're going to move on to some domestic topics. And we will continue, of course, to follow that uh, across the Iher Radio Talk Network and certainly on, on your local stations and on this show, I think, in the coming in the coming weeks. Uh, but as mentioned, there is an election happening in Quebec, and it's a significant one. Uh, now, polls are continuing to say Premier Legault's coalition, Avenir Quebec, or the CAC, will take power on October 3rd with a massive majority, uh, which is one he's had to date and, and continues on his success. But the premier has made a few uncharacteristic missteps this week, apologizing twice. So earlier he this week, he said when asked why he was so adamant about keeping Quebec's immigration levels lower than 50,000 
a year, despite the province's serious labor shortage, he responded with, I'm going to give you the following quote, just because it's for English listeners. Quebecers are peaceful. They don't like conflict and extremism and violence, and we have to make sure to keep things the way they are now. He also repeated an argument that he and other candidates have often used to defend the party stance, saying, while Quebec struggles to integrate newcomers and isn't alone to do so. He was obviously called out for that um, and later had to apologize. Now, here is Liberal leader Dominique Anglade, who said Francois Legault's comments are the latest example of the Quebec the CAC leader creating division among Quebecers. It's very degrading for immigrants. So uh, I, I want him to explain himself. He has since said there is no link between uh, violence, extremism and immigration. And yesterday he was in the hot seat and asked to explain again why he felt that way. What I said is that in any uh, country or state, there's a challenge of integration to the values and to the language. So when questions were asked about which values, I shouldn't have answered that because some people made a bad link between that and our immigrants. In Quebec, our challenge is really about the language not about the values. Now, he also had to apologize this week separately for having, I quote, I'm not kidding, there was an English document on his campaign website detailing his government's accomplishments. Uh, he was called out for having an English, single English document on his campaign website, calling it an exception and saying the website is now in French only, other than, I believe they have something about COVID-19 on there in both languages. Um, I'm going to go to you first, Elias is our Quebec expert. Uh, so what's going on with uh, Premier Legault here? <laughs> it's like like extremism and immigration. We can't. He doesn't like English. Like what what's happening? And yeah. will this have any impact on the Quebec election results? Okay, let me try and go through as as much of it uh, as possible. I'll start off with the language uh, front because I think it's a, a simpler issue to tackle. This doesn't matter who is in power in Quebec. It's been fifty years. Liberal. Parti Québécois, which is the traditionally separatist party, or now the CAQ in, in the new paradigm of Quebec politics, all of those governments have always been tough on English, okay? The CAQ has just continued on that front. The comical thing about this week is that in June, it was the Anglo media bashing the party, hey, you don't have English on your website anymore. So for the election, they put the English on. The French media finds out. They do stories. Hey, you've got English on your website, and you keep saying that you're and you pass new laws to show that in, that French should be, you know, the first language, and you, there shouldn't be inherent bilingualism in Quebec. So they got called out on it, and then they pulled the English off the website. I find it comical because it's a great example of how someone will always find a reason uh, to criticize. But here's the one thing that has changed on the language front. I mentioned when it comes to Quebec and its leaders and its political parties in power, they're always gonna to be tough on English. That's what they do. But the federal government, where Justin Trudeau and, the, and, and his current liberal brand, they don't believe in the same things when it comes to bilingualism in Canada that we've seen from liberal classic, the Jean Chrétiens and the Paul Martins of previous liberal governments. In fact, they are actively right now planning for their new official policy on bilingualism in this country, saying our next policy will be asymmetrical. One thing for the rest of Canada, one thing for Quebec. And as an Anglo in Quebec, that's what's discouraging. What's been, what has allowed Anglos to live a fairly peaceful and productive life in Quebec is that no matter how hardline Quebec can be, 
We've always got a federal government standing on our side saying, you know what, Canada's bilingual will always be bilingual. But now we have a governor general that doesn't speak French, which irks Francophones to no end in this province. And to make up for it, the federal government's willing to throw Anglos under the bus all the time in this province, and that's what they're doing. Now, on the other topic here, immigration and, and all of that, I'll, I'll start off on that end with an interview I did on my show today. So I was doing an interview with a women's shelter, and they, uh, for, for homeless women, they started in 1988. And as we're doing the, the interview, we're talking about what has been changing. And now what this, you know, this, this women's shelter has to focus so much on finding people that speak different languages and, and finding people that know how to deal with immigrants from different, quote, cultural communities, right? And what François Legault was trying to do this week, what he was trying to do is have a three-hour discussion on immigration and fit it into a 30-second soundbite. So he ends up, you know, it's a word salad that he delivers that links uh, immigration with extremism and violence. And we all know, we have empirical evidence, by the way, that immigration, all of the net positives, and how immigrants contribute economically, how immigrants contri uh, contribute, and their children contribute at the school level. So many things in favor of immigration. But what's not deniable is that when you talk about violence against women and family violence, immigration ties into that. And Quebec has simply said for the longest time, you want to come to Quebec, it's our values Men and women are equal, which is why Quebec is the most progressive part of North America that comes first. So unfortunate what happened to the premier because he stepped in it this week. But I think it's more complex than to the refrain from the opposition. There you go again. Francois Legault is xenophobic. Uh, Matt, what do you make of... Yeah, I'm going to pick up the last piece there, which I know is a bit more complicated. But do you think... It was a misspeak by the premier, or do you think it was just him being too plain spoken about an issue that a lot of Quebecers may agree with? Look, when someone says the sort of thing they've made a career out of saying and then claim it was a misspeak, I don't believe them. Um, <laughs> Francois Legault and, and, and the CAC in general, and I say this with all admiration, have really settled upon what is proving to be an overwhelmingly successful policy in French politics, uh, Quebec politics, French Canadian politics. Looking over the last couple of years, even during the pandemic, when on many important metrics, Quebec objectively fared worse than other jurisdictions. Francois Legault, he took some heat. He took some hits. He, his poll numbers suffered, but nothing like the chaos we saw in Ontario, in Queen's Park, where sort of the second worst Canadian jurisdiction was. This is a guy who has figured out a winning formula, which is an antagonistic towards the Anglos, antagonistic towards um, other other forms of uh, re religious or cultural minorities, but towing a line that is sort of just barely on side with being welcoming and inclusive so that some of those people can hold their nose and vote for them anyway because they like the economic policies here. I don't have to like the strategy to admire its success. I don't pretend to be an expert in Quebec politics here, but as a, as a guy on the outside looking in and always watching Quebec politics with interest, because it's interesting, Quebec and Alberta are the most interesting provinces in this country by a country mile, I see that Legault has the formula. Set aside sovereignty minimize the national uh, elements and go hard on the identity stuff, whether it's linguistic identity or cultural identity, or religious identity. I wish it wasn't as effective as it's proving, but the numbers and the voters are just, I mean, whatever I want to think about well, it, it's working. 
I just want to say uh, to jump to jump in right at the end. I know we're limited on time. You know, this is a classic <laughs> rest. This is a classic rest of Canada view. You know, Montreal has less hate crime per Canada than Calgary and Edmonton and Toronto and Halifax. But Quebec is the racist province. And for every person that looks at Quebec's Bill 21 and says, oh, because of that bill, I don't want to move to Quebec. There are 10 others who live in countries where they don't have freedom. And they say, wow, I can move to a place and religion is out of the state. That's where I want to go. And that's why we haven't seen Quebec's immigration efforts falter since Bill 21. Okay. And with that, unfortunately, we have to cut that debate off. We're going to debate the bank interest rates, which went up by 0.75%, how that impacts you and what will come next after the break. You're listening to Free For All Fridays with host Amanda Galbraith on the iHeartRadio Talk Network. Hello and welcome back to the show. I'm your host, Amanda Galbraith, where we dig into the biggest stories of the week uh, across the country with some of the smartest people, some uh, journalists, talkers, uh, iHeartRadio hosts. And today we have two excellent guests contributing, Matt Gurney, journalist and co-founder of The Line and Elias Makos, host of The Elias Makos Show on CJAD in Montreal, which airs from 9 a.m. to noon. Now, it's been a very heavy news week and a busy news week uh, this week. So in particular, uh, this story, I think, grabbed global attention. A four-day manhunt ended yesterday with the capture and death of the second suspect, Miles Sanderson, in the mass stabbing that killed 12 people and injured 18 others in James Smith Cree Nation. Now, Sanderson was found south of south of Rosser, Saskatchewan, driving along the highway in a stolen truck. Here's RCMP Commissioner Rhonda Blackmore providing some more details. Shortly after his arrest, he went into medical distress. Nearby, EMS were called by police to attend the scene, and he was transported to a hospital in Saskatoon. He was pronounced deceased at the hospital. Blackmore further said she can't speak to why Sanderson died. Uh, it's, it's just something I can't speak to the specific... Uh, manner of death that's going to be part of the autopsy that will be conducted there is now of course a specific investigation into the circumstances of his death Uh, but it's been interesting to watch the story evolve obviously because one this happened um, five days ago Uh, it made national news international news uh, and in comparison to there's been comparisons drawn to what's happened in Nova Scotia right and and all of the dangers there now the community here was warned relatively quickly that a killer was on the loose they issued a dangerous persons report within two hours uh, they seem to have held regular press conferences. So it's much more aggressive than what we saw in Nova Scotia, which sort of wanted, brought me forward and wanted to ask the panel, and I'm going to go to you first, Matt. Do you think the RCMP have learned lessons from Nova Scotia here, or do we think that was an aberration and this is actually just much more in keeping with what we should expect from our police service? You know, that's actually a really interesting question, and it's something I'm, I'm writing about right now, so I don't want to give everything away, but, I mean, here's a bit of a spoiler. <laughs> One of the interesting things that has come out of the aftermath of the Nova Scotia shooting, including at the recent inquiry, where we've had uh, federal testimony in Parliament, we also have the Mass Casualty Commission unfolding in Nova Scotia, is recent comments by National RCMP Commissioner Brenda Lucky, who commented that to date, there have been no changes to doctrine, mm-hmm. training, equipment uh, in response. And she she was widely criticized by that, and I think rightly. And then we have this incident in Saskatchewan. So, Amanda, I don't know how to answer your question. I don't know if Nova Scotia was sort of an unusual, inexplicable failure, 
or I don't know if local commanders in Saskatchewan, in the absence, perhaps, of national top-level direction, basically said, how would we respond if this was us? What would we have done if this was us? Because like, institutions are hard to change, but individuals within them can read the newspaper and watch, like, watch the nightly news and to see, wow, our colleagues in Nova Scotia are getting killed for this. When the attacks in Saskatchewan began, there was a delay of about an hour, I think a little bit more, and then uh, Saskatchewan activated its emergency broadcasting and alert system and began to warn local communities. We can look at whether or not that should have been faster. To be honest with you, I think given the challenges of rural policing, dispersed incident sites, and a lot of confusion in the early reports, I think they probably got that alert out a bit faster, uh, about kind of as quickly as you'd expect. But I would say in Nova Scotia, they never put out a public warning at all, except tweets on Twitter. This is an example of where I don't know if they did better because they were told to do better or if some smart RCMP commander in Saskatchewan said, you know what, I'm not getting hung out to dry because we didn't use the damned alert system, so let's get a public alert out right now. You don't need direction from the top to learn lessons from the failures of others, although directions from the top kind of help. <laughs> um, Elias, I also, because uh, we, we talked about it on the show a couple weeks ago when Brenda Lucky did her testimony where she said nothing has changed. And I was like, how is that possible? Mm-hmm. It's been 18, I think 18 or 20, I forget, almost two years since since the Nova Scotia incident. So and when this happened, I wanted to look into it because I was just curious, in fact, has there been criticism in the RCMP? And there really hasn't been. So do you think, like, wh- what's your take? Is it lessons learned here or do we have some smart RCMP officers in Saskatchewan who just knew what they were doing? Well, you know, on on Brenda Lecky and the RCMP not enacting any changes, I don't know how you can think, look at that and how much time has elapsed and not think about it incompetence here. But I, but on this, you know, I don't know how you prepare or plan for one or two people who decide to go on a stabbing spree. But here's one thing that you do have control over. Miles Sanderson had 59 prior convictions, including convictions for violent crime. 59. 59 prior convictions. How does this person not get deemed a dangerous offender and not end up on the streets again? That to me is where all my questioning lies. 59 convictions, violent convictions, was out and able to stab a lot of people. I think that's an excellent point, right? And something, and it's been interesting. They're even saying now we will never know, we may never know the motive. We'll never. So hopefully this will be looked at, maybe not from the RCMP's actions, but perhaps from why was he allowed to be operating out in the community, out and and cause the death of twelve people, and injured eighteen others. Uh, now we're as we know we're in the back section of the show, so we try and get two topics, and I do want to get to this one as well. Earlier this week, the Bank of Canada raised key interest rates by 0.75 percent, and has signaled it likely intends to go higher. Now, if you're an average Canadian, you're probably thinking, all right, can you just Stop it already. We'd like to borrow money. I've enjoyed my low mortgage interest rates. I'm trying to sell my house. Um, I'm trying to keep my car payments low. So I wanted to ask the, the panel what you made of this hike. I know they don't take direction, obviously, from the the Federal Reserve in the States, but obviously we try and keep ours mirrored. Uh, but to me, there's also been some criticism saying, are we going to go too far? If In fact, they do do another point. Later this year, or half a point has been discussed. Matt, what did you think of this interest rate hike? And when do you think if, if the government is going to, or the Bank of Canada is going to lay off? They'll lay off when they see tangible signs it's working. 
And to be honest, this week I expected it to be higher than it was. I was expecting a full point uh, increase, and we got three quarters of a point. Look, no one likes this. Everybody's feeling the pain. But I think what the the broader public may not understand, especially those of us in our many millions who have never lived in a high inflation environment, this is tough medicine, but it's better than the alternative. So will uh, the Bank of Canada go too far? Almost certainly. I imagine they will cause a recession here. We will find out whether it's a mild one or if it's a, uh, a a terrible one. But look, they're only going to have lagging indicators here. They will know it's working probably 12 months after they do it. So unless they get very lucky, they will inevitably go too far. But if they do nothing, we'd be in deep trouble. Elias, I uh, have 30 seconds yeah. for you here. What did you make of the interest rate hike? Yeah. Listen, all I know is that I, I bought my car in March of 2021. My interest rate was 1.9% because they even lowered it because it was an electric <laughs> car. And I wonder, you know, now, now it's free money. I'm not paying off that loan a second earlier than I need to because it's turned into free money with an interest rate so low. Uh, as far as recession, we're going to see what happens when you combine record low unemployment and, a, and seemingly a recession. Those two things generally don't go together. I think it's going to be fascinating. Yeah, it's going to be it's going to be fascinating to watch because I like we have to move and I bought my current interest rate on my condo is one point seven one point seven something. It's incredibly low, and now we're looking at like if I do it's five. It's crazy out there. So I think it's been hard for lots of Canadians. Anyway, it's been a fascinating show today. Obviously, covering King Charles's first remarks going across the country. Thank you so much to. Um, to ever to Matt, to Samantha, to Tony, to Elias for coming on the show. Uh, I'm Amanda Galbraith. We will see you next Friday.